Hi, I'm Ted Price, and on today's episode of the Game Maker's Notebook, I had the pleasure of talking with Kim Pallister, who is the director of the VR Center of Excellence at Intel. Kim is an expert in a lot of different areas, and we focused on augmented reality, virtual reality, AI, and open systems. These are topics that we don't really talk about that much on the Game Maker's Notebook, and so I think a lot of us who are involved in games or even peripherally involved in games will definitely find something new to check out. So please join me. Welcome to the Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Pleasure to be here today with Kim Pallister, who is the director of the VR Center of Excellence at Intel. And that's, can you describe what that means? Yeah, sure. So uh, Intel's a huge matrix company that does a lot of stuff. Uh, I live in a group called the Client Computing Group. Uh, probably the thing Intel's most known for is the processors in laptop and desktop computers. That's the uh, business unit that I'm part of. And uh, we realized some number of years ago that gaming was a huge business for us. And uh, so we have a group there who's focused on on driving that business forward. How do we take gaming on all flavors of PCs and things related to gaming like esports and like VR and uh, things like that and just keep it moving forward, keep it uh, progressing knocking down barriers that are facing people. That's, that's what we're wrestling with. Well, and you and I realized that we've, our paths have intersected a lot yeah. over the last 20 years. Right. And I think just in, in talking to each other earlier today, it was kind of surprising for both of us. Right. And, go ahead. Yeah. 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 So, um, we were, I was saying that, uh, I got my start at, uh, I'm, I'm originally from uh, Montreal, Canada, and I got my start at a company there called Matrox Graphics that at one point in time was one, them and ATI were kind of the, the, uh, bouncing back and forth between number one and number two, uh, GPU vendors in the world. And, um, that was kind of during that whole first wave of 3d on PCs with, you know, S3 and ATI and 3d effects and rendition and all that. And, and I only went to work there because they were kind of a stone's throw from mom and dad's house. And so you get out of school and you're like, well, I'll apply there. It's close by. And then I just luck, it lucked into a space where they were doing uh, high-end graphics cards for, um, uh, for PCs for CAD and things like uh, running, you know, 1600 by 1200 Photoshop, which at that time required like a $4,000 graphics card to do, right? And, uh, and, they, and, and the CEO said, I think this 3D gaming thing is going to go somewhere. Let's, you know, go down to this game developer conference and figure out what we need to go do. And so me and other guys started like cribbing the rumored PlayStation 1 spec sheet and, and uh, other things. And, uh, and, and then the business just took off from there, right? So, you know, um, that went through all the kind of proprietary API stuff, the first wave of DirectX. And then uh, when Intel was ramping up their effort with the Pentium 3 and the SSE instruction set, they said, hey, we better build up some 3D expertise. Uh, a guy there had met me at a conference. They you know, offered to recruit me to come down. I figured out what American companies were paying versus the Canadian ones and was on kind of the next, uh, you know, the next boat out, so to speak. And uh, 
Yeah, and then and then I th we were saying in the hallway earlier that I think we met because we, you know Intel was going out and meeting with developers about different 3D titles, and I think we had a couple of conversations about you guys were doing stuff on console and kind of dabbling in PC and in that those first conversations that came out of it. But e either that or we've probably you know drunkenly argued at the Fairmont lobby at some point at uh, GDC or something <laughs> like that. It's well, we definitely we definitely thought. I mean, I think what's been great is that Intel has always been. Uh, put in heavily involved in mm. gaming, if not a traditional publisher, Intel has been supporting a lot of our efforts. And I say our as an industry uh, to bring you know, high-end graphics to players. I mean, we we worked with Intel on the Unspoken, which is a VR game we put out a couple of years ago, and I, I have to say I was really surprised at, at positive, positively surprised at the enthusiasm right. and and the game expertise that exists at Intel. Yeah, there's uh, there's been, you know, uh, you could almost think of it as kind of uh, three three waves that have happened in the company. There's there's just been a you know uh, an everyday end user perspective knowledge amongst the employee base there that like yeah this is what people use computers for right people play games on computers and that should be a thing that we take into account and they make a great you know showcase and a good. Uh, reason for people to aspire to buy a new PC and things like that. Um, and so the, there was kind of fragmented efforts for many years. And then some, uh, you know, know decade-ish back, people started to, and, and I think it was somewhat in, uh, you know, uh, following the timeline of these kind of specialty gaming PCs, when you started to get the Alienwares and other people that started to build machines targeted directly at gamers, that meant that suddenly you could like, track sales that were directly attributable to gaming and people realized like there's a lot of money here right and and this is uh what we always suspected could now be proven and it justifies the investment and it steers a lot of your efforts and so there's been a um you know a, a very focused and deliberate effort across numerous teams and the amount of expertise the company has built up is amazing we were talking earlier about how there are so many kind of uh X Microsoft, X Sony, X 3DFX people that uh, you know that, that uh, now now I run into in the halls, right? And uh, a lot a lot of uh, expertise, not just from hardware and platform companies, but also from various game studios or whatever. So uh, that I view that as kind of this second wave. And then what we're um, a lot of the discussion that we're having now is in recognizing that while there is a kind of uh, you know, if you look at numbers from Nuzu or IDC or whatever, you'll see, you'll see kind of uh, this number getting thrown around of, uh, you know, two and a half billion gamers in the world, around 1.2 billion people playing games on PCs. There's, depending whose numbers you look at, 100 to 200 million of those that are, you know, on Steam and on the Epic Game Store and playing high-end games. So and and buying those Alienware machines and other uh, high-end gaming rigs, who are the other billion people, and how do we meet their needs, right? And so thinking about gaming holistically across the whole uh, range of different computers that the whole industry builds, many of which in, involve our products, um, I think it you know is it constitutes kind of a new opportunity for us to think about uh how we take the the whole market to the next level right i think there's a, a huge untapped opportunity to directly address and you know bring better quality experiences and better quality kind of platforms uh to those users that we'll look back and say oh that that kind of uh 
hardcore gaming lucrative market was only the tip of an iceberg, right? So, do you think that the a lot of the games today that are played by uh, a broader audience are are helping spread the word about the importance of of CPUs? And I only say this because anecdotally, I have a son who's passionate, and that's probably a too weak a word to use uh, about Fortnite, and he's mm-hmm. he's at, at only eleven. He was researching CPUs and GPUs along with all of his friends, and they're using vernacular that I would expect from a 20-something-year-old because they they really are interested in making sure that they have the best possible chips. And and I think to Intel's credit, they've been very, you know, what's the word? They put put out a lot of information about sure. why you know, CPUs are important for certain games and NVIDIA on the same, you know, the same way has had a great marketing campaign in terms of promoting its GPUs. Yeah, we went through a uh, similar thing about a year ago at my house where uh, I, I've got three kids in teen and preteen years and um, they, the schools these days, a lot of them use Chromebooks for okay. kind of everything, right? So they were getting a Chromebook each. And my older son, who's a, a I mean, all three kids game, but the older son is just a, 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 an avid gamer uh, tried to kind of make the case for, I, I think what I really need is a, you know, a Lenovo, uh, gaming notebook with discrete graphics. And so I made him kind of, you know, well, you write the pitch for me, you know, <laughs> yeah. you justify why you need this for schoolwork. Cause I totally knew what he really wanted it for. Um, but I was surprised at kind of the discussions between him and his friends about, well, you know, here's why I need an Optane drive. And I'm like, could you tell me? Cause I don't even really remember what our, what our pitch is about that. Right. Um, so it, it, it goes both ways. There is a, a kind of, uh, you know, a, a, the vernacular and the parlance about these things kind of uh, people get educated about. But you also have wide ranges of people that if you're going to bring gaming experience to them, they have to be able to do that without thinking about it, mm-hmm. right? They have to be yeah. able to just say, I just want to pick up a, you know, an iPad or, or one of these slim notebooks or, or a phone and I just want to know it's going to give me a fun experience. It's like if, if you buy a, a tablet and you expect it to run Netflix, you don't go list, looking at bullets about what codec do you support. Do you right. support H.264 and the right variant of that? It's like you've already lost them, right? Um, but, but in that uh, you know, space where people are passionate about it, we, we were having a conversation about this the other day. Uh, I have a kind of a, a pet theory that uh, uh, latency is the new frame rate mm-hmm. in that you know, if you go back to kind of a Sega Dreamcast era or before that, most people didn't really talk about frame rate and frame rate consistency and drop frames and stuttering and stuff like that or anti-aliasing. And, and now that's like in that core gaming community, it's, it's pretty well known, right? And now people throw the word latency around, but they kind of don't know what it means. And so we're, we're going to go through a phase of education, again, pet theory of mine that, uh, you know, that the, the we'll find ourselves in five years from now, people, you know, being very knowledgeable about what it means. So I was talking about my local uh, input latency, not my network latency or not the, you know, uh, server round trip time or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, mm-hmm. what does it mean to Intel that now we are looking at the advent of uh, streaming services where games are being rendered on a remote server and the information is being sent to the end user who could play on a Chromebook or, or phone or sure anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, it's, it's interesting. This is already, uh, you know, if you take the 
core gamer uh, US centric point of view. It's kind of this thing on the advent, right? Like, oh, we, you know, t someone's taking another run at on live and uh, is Stadia going to work or not? If you look elsewhere in the world, it's already happening and getting deployed, right? There are already people uh, streaming game services to phones in places like China. We have people that are uh, uh, partners of ours, like at GDC, um, uh, Tencent showed a system that they built around Intel hardware, which started as a um, uh, stuff they were doing for kind of testing all the range of permutations of phones. So they were like emulating all these th different phones on PC hardware. And then they realized, hey, we can just send these frames over and then like legacy phones can all just get a good experience, right? So the the point of view uh, I tend to take, I mean, there's obviously people that are responsible for, you know, the, the business of selling high-end PCs that are worried, hey, is this going to displace those systems? Uh, there's people responsible for selling hardware into data centers. So like, this is great, right? Uh, we have the advantage of selling silicon on both ends of the wire. So as long as it sells compute somewhere, uh, it's, it usually ends up being good for us. Um, I, I tend to think that, uh, and again, just, you know, my, my personal view here, um, number one, like more paths to the cash register is also always good. More choice for consumers about what way you can get stuff, uh, subscription, download, you know, trade off some quality for lower price, like just more, more choice for people is a good thing. Um, and, and I think that in the end, the, the potential of those kinds of systems to take today's games and deliver them in a like more efficient manner is way less interesting than what it'll do that what you guys will do to actually change the design of the games and the design of the medium. Right. Um, Netflix not making you get a, a DVD is less interesting than Netflix engendering, like releasing a whole season of a show at once and yeah. letting you binge on it. Right. That changes the dynamic of how you consume the content, how you make the content. And so I think for some of these, uh, streaming services, like, you know, part of what I've challenged on my team on is like, okay, so you've got a, a, a petaflop of computing in the cloud. What if everybody connecting to that also has, you know, uh, teraflops of compute on their local system. What, what is a game developer rubbing their hands together and thinking about what they can do and saying, here, hold my beer, right? Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think it's exciting. Uh, I, I think that, you know, there'll be a lot of uh, kinks along the way. We'll see, uh, you know, who's, whether it's Stadia or something else that delivers a good solution, it's, uh, it's all good at the end. So, so one related technology that I think you talk a lot about is augmented reality. Yeah. You, you made a great speech last year where you presented a, a day in the life of somebody in 2025. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At uh, AWE, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I found that fantastic because some of the, the games slash experiences you were mentioning there were, seemed really practical. And, uh, and I just, I. I thought mascot melee was one of them. Yeah, UBU yeah. was another one. The garbage truck route optimization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was yeah. really cool. Yeah. And I, I would suggest that anybody who uh, wants to see a really cool vision of the future should go watch that. Yeah, it's up on YouTube. Go go check it out. Yeah, thanks. That means a lot. I, I'm I'm flattered that you uh, liked it. I I will say a couple of the concepts were uh, ripped off wholesale from various uh, science fiction uh, kind of stuff. So um, uh, halting state. Uh, by Charles Strauss is a is like required reading in, in my team. Not required, but I, I buy a lot of copies of it and give it to new employees and stuff that uh, has 
uh, it was actually Ralph Koster who turned me on to the book. That mm. was like, man, I don't know who this author is, but he's nailing so many things on point about potential future of uh, MMOs and stuff like that. Um, and the mascot melee was actually uh, riffing on a concept in a, a, a one of my favorite books from the past couple of years called Lady of Mazes, okay. which is a really like hard science fiction far in the future to the point where. Uh, AR is pre-installed and you don't even know that it is. So you don't really know what's real and what's not. And, uh, and, and in the opening chapter, the author has this kind of fiction around your like social media feed, which is a bunch of your friends just kind of pop up as little fairies around you and you interact with them and you don't know whether it's kind of them live or their AI stand in. And you kind of don't care because the, the AI is good enough that you just, you know, it wouldn't matter one way or the other. And so we did this, you know, concept of like the, the characters kind of running around your breakfast table and, and fighting with the snap crackle pop on your cereal box and stuff. So, yeah, I can't claim total credit. I was ripping off other ideas. Well, but, yeah. I, what I loved about it was yeah. that it presented something that seemed very likely given right. that we've been reading plenty about uh, up and coming AR companies and some very established companies mm -hmm. like Microsoft and HoloLens mm -hmm. who are, spending a lot of time and money to yeah. make this a reality. But related to the streaming that we were just talking about and right. sort of the, 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 the render farms sending you content, were your concepts sort of also based on that, that there's a compute farm somewhere that is doing a lot of the work and then sending it to your local device that has the petaflops of, of compute power as well? Yeah, there's a version of... Uh... I'm trying to remember if I actually made this external and, and if not, I should do so. But there's a version of that presentation that has kind of the paper behind it of like here's yeah. here's all the tech kind of concepts and ideas that it's based on and there are some things that are like hey this is a solvable problem it's a matter of kind of time and moore's law and costs and there are other things that are just like not solved right okay like hard hard problems uh, many of which have and i said this in the talk have to do with like design and privacy policy and uh uh, open versus closed systems and, and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, the, the, each of those concepts kind of riffs on um, uh, a couple ideas that, that, you know, that we see happening in tech space. So you, you mentioned the like stream, the streaming of frames idea. Um, so when we, when I, when I built the, the VR team in, in our organization, we were looking at uh, a number of challenges and problems, right? So, uh, I did this thing where um, this, this was like almost career suicide in retrospect. Uh, we got one of, uh, so I, I gave a, a talk to like our, our executive board, our CEO and kind of all the executive VPs and stuff and got Vive Pre's, like a dozen of them and gave them all to them. I was like, I'm going to give a big talk and I'm going to have like an Oprah moment. You get a Vive Pre and you get one. And I got one myself. And then I took mine home and I started to set it up and I thought, oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> I've got a bunch of, you know, uh, guys that, that spend most of their time looking at spreadsheets and stuff. And, uh, and, and this is not exactly friendly to set up, right? Anyway, a number of them actually went home and installed them. So good for them. They were very, pretty hands-on. And I immediately like got like, you know, the, the, the first feedback from the CEO was, uh, hey, you got to get rid of this wire off the back of my head. Like this has got to be wireless. End of story. Go make it happen, right? And we went and, uh, and you know, like two years later or something, collaborated with uh, HTC um, and, uh, and, and with some other uh, partners and with our YGIG team and actually ended up building a system for the Vive, right? 
Um, so there's an add-on module to HTC cells that we help them uh, help them develop. And and in tackling that whole space, we were thinking about, okay, well, what should exist on one side of the wire versus another? Where should you be doing, you know, a reprojection or time warp or uh, whatever variant of kind of like masking or hiding latency or trading off of versus uh, versus error? And um, and realize that, hey, if I'm doing this from a local PC to here, it's not that much different to do it from like edge compute uh, at some point in the future when, you know, things like 5G are around. So a lot of that, those same ideas and same technology will, uh, you know, reemerge, not just from us, like, the, you know, they're, they're not unique ideas. Um, and they'll be part of solving the problem, right? Like, it's one thing to kind of, uh, you know, solve all these optics problems to make the glasses smaller, et cetera. But if it's still attached to a compute brick, it's not going to be uh, a really mainstream solution. And so you either dumb down the experience or you find a way to move most of the compute somewhere else and keep the thing, uh, you know, light on your head or whatever. So, well, those, that's an interesting choice. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, which one do you think is more mass market viable? Uh, it's all a question of, when and for what? So I did a, a an article for um, VentureBeat a while back. That uh, did you see this thing going around the, on the internet a year back that was called the, like the the wheel of cognitive dissonance and it talked about all these different things, yeah. right? So I, I did a riff on that that was about like all the trade offs in AR systems, and I said, look, at the end of the day, the thing that does all the stuff at kind of ten out of ten level isn't viable. And if it was, it would cost a fortune and it would have a car battery attached to it. So it's a really a matter of picking trade-offs. And there's a school of uh, thought that says, I'm going to try and just pick a couple use cases and do a really good uh, 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 job of them. Like um, uh, what Jerry's doing at uh, Tilt 5 is a great example, right? I'm going to just do like AR for board games on your tabletop and that's it. That's great. Like it's, you know, oh, I can't do this. I can't do that. Yeah, but you could really nail that experience, right? So it's a, a good example. Um, whereas maybe people like Magic Leap are saying, I'm going to try and do the whole system, but I'm going to trade off affordability and I'm going to trade off maybe the, the quality of some of the things. It's not like, you know, those glasses don't weigh 50 grams, right? Um, so... I don't know that there's a right answer. I think there's going to be a lot of trade-offs and, uh, and a lot of implementations and the market will have to decide what works or not. I'll give you an example that we um, showed as a, so my team develops a bunch of like proofs of concepts uh, and we showed this as a proof of concept at, a, um, uh, at, at AWE last year in just like a video presentation. But um, we did a thing where we took a, a set of AR glasses from this company, Enreal, uh, uh, out of out of China. They have a very very lightweight uh, pair of glasses with uh, uh, inside out tracking, um, but then it has a USB C cord and it requires mm -hmm. the computer to be somewhere else. And so we did a thing where we plug them into a laptop and just take your extended Windows desktop and just do the other monitors outside your main monitor. So if you normally have two or three monitors at your desk and you go on the road, you can put these things on, you get your other monitors back while you still use your main one, which is still higher res and stuff. That's it. That's all it does. It doesn't play games and do all these other things. But it's an example of like, can I really nail that one use case at, you know, at the expense of trying to do everything? And, you know, we'll, we'll see whether someone takes up that kind of concept. But um, what was the response? Yeah. Uh, 
people are interested. There is a couple of partners that are kind of uh, talking to us about what it would take to adopt it. I can't. Well, I, I can't talk about what sure, they're doing. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. obviously, yeah. I wouldn't ask yeah. you that. But I guess what I'm interested in is what if you tested it out mm -hmm. on people who are multi-monitor right. users, did they find it uh, compelling? I would say they found it. Uh, we we did a series of let's say. Uh, demos and sit down tests that people said, oh, wow, it's surprisingly readable, surprisingly usable. Um, you know, quality is really good. I would really like this. We didn't get to a stage of, okay, great, take it home and, and use mm. it in your hotel tonight. Yeah. Right. And there were some, uh, you know, uh, quirks of it being demo aware that would, it wasn't yet at that level of uh, productivity. So, you you know, if somebody chose to take it up and, and actually productize it, you'd have to go through kind of a next round of user testing where you yeah. said, okay, I need to get it to more closer to real products so that I can test all that functionality. That makes sense. I mean, yeah. we, we also work in AR yeah. and one of, we, we talked about a lot of non-game use cases, mm -hmm. that being one of them, another just as a, AR browser that would replace what you normally do on your computer, right. uh, chat, all the stuff that probably people immediately think of when they start to fantasize about making AR stuff. Yeah. And um, we had the same questions. Would it be practical? And one of the things we actually ran into when brainstorming was the limitations of FOV, right? Yeah. And uh, so I wanted just as an expert, yeah. you, you being the expert, want to ask you, where, where are we going on that? Because I don't quite understand the physics limitations that okay. we we're experiencing right now with existing headsets. So on, on things like field of view, yeah. um, for VR, AR, or both. AR. Okay. So I think that, uh, you know, if you think about the ways that people are doing AR displays, you basically have people that are doing, uh, you know, uh, camera pass through AR in VR headsets that may you know may surprise me and get to a quality that it's like surprisingly good and usable and i do think it has its place but i think that for an everyday ar wear it out in the real world thing like your you know your primary criteria is i i need to be able to interact with the world in the way that i've been doing for 50 years right yeah. and so it feels like you need uh see through at that point and then you've got either the kind of um you know a small OLED panel with a half mirror, or you've got waveguides, they both have their sets of trade-offs, uh, both of which are working towards kind of widening the field of view and the resolution. You know, it's it's basically take that resolution and then you have a trade-off in terms of cost of optics, the where the given process technology is, is at. Like, so for like waveguides as an example, there are, you know, uh, a handful of vendors that kind of have locked up all the IP space and are are in a kind of arms race and tend to be neck and neck, which is why you tend to see things like a magic leap and a whole lens, you know, when they come out around the same time, they tend to have something comparable in terms of field of view. And, uh, and then it's a question of, okay, how much cost do I incur on the optics to put that closer to my eye? And that'll have some trade off in terms of aberrations and uh, calibration stuff like the the magic leap is a little bit cumbersome to kind of get calibrated to start with. Right. Yeah. Um, so it'll get better. Uh, I think that also the, um, the, the field of view thing is interesting because it's not, it's not clear to me that you need 180 degree field of view. It depends on the use case and what you're looking to see. Maybe the way to think about it is, and I haven't plotted this just theory. There's probably a, a, you know, knee in the curve kind of trade off at, 
at what point does whatever your object of interest kind of give you enough field of view that you don't really think about it, right? Certainly when it's like 20 or 30 degrees, it's painful. I'm clipping it all kinds, right? Once you get to a certain point, it's, uh, I, I'm focused on that object on my table or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you, when do you think, this is a big question, mm -hmm. when do you think we will see a truly mass market AR headset? The, the favorite answer that, you know, analysts will give you is like, uh, oh, when, when Apple builds something, cause they do, cause <laughs> they do great, stuff, right? Well, answer. it's, uh, yeah. it's not my answer. It's, it's a bit tongue in cheek. Uh, yeah. geez, I, I don't know. It feels like, um, the idea of, you know, <clears throat> I'm comfortable wearing them out in public mm -hmm. glasses. That means they have to be, you know, 75 grams or something and and achieve some set of functionality that's a long way off unless you limit the use cases like guys like uh you know uh well we had this uh, vaunt project going for a while and then there were other there's some other guys that are just doing the like you know limited let show me my text messages and not much else right and so it then it becomes a question of well will, will someone pick the one or two use cases that's good enough for me will someone do driving directions maybe you know maybe navigation or stuff like that i'm not sure that's the use case but something uh limited it, that feels like it's feasible in a couple of years otherwise they're going to be a little more cumbersome which means you need to Either you stay in the commercial space, maybe it comes down in price and gets to, you know, some more widespread uses in uh, outside of these, you know, high end niches, or you nail some kind of gaming system that people are comfortable. There's, you know, taking, taking out with them. I could see people wearing like slightly awkwardly heavy glasses to have, you know, next gen Pokemon go, but then they can't cost $500, right? Yeah. So it's, it's rough. I don't know. Man. Well, you mentioned the yeah. weight, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, are you also yeah. implying the style is important is there a stigma that you guys have found associated with any kind of headset yeah 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 i think i mean i knew i knew some folks on the on the vaunt team before we kind of wound that project down and certainly they were looking for what is the thing that you'll wear all day long at public where to meetings uh where to a nightclub or what have you and at that point it's like yes there are some really hard barriers right? and then they would go have meetings with uh you know, people that make stylish eyewear and kind of say, hey, the thing you thought was great, like not good enough yet, right? <laughs> and so um, there's a really hard uh, hard barrier there. It's hard to say if you could have like a slightly awkward version of that, you might get people over the hump on, like, you know, people wear uh, the, you know, AirPods and that's a little bit weird and yet it, people accept it. So it might be okay at a certain point or it might be, I take, you know, they accessorize my phone or, or some other new type of system. And I, uh, I, you know, I put them on when I'm doing something and then I take them off when I'm talking to my friends. We'll, we'll see. But I do think that, you know, for general outdoor everyday use, there's both a, uh, a, a stigma. There is a, uh, you know, then there's kind of like a fatigue factor. If it's too heavy, you just don't want to wear them for a long time. Um, and then there's all the kind of like, there are also sensors, right? So all that stuff we went through with Google Glass, like people need to get comfortable that you might be filming them. And, uh, the, you know, so I don't know what that's going to end up looking yeah, like. Yeah, that, that seems really hard, especially when you're talking about inside out tracking and all, having to have cameras on the outside of VR or AR headsets, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so I don't, I, I don't, have you guys talked about a way to make those things more socially acceptable? Uh you know, 
I have. I think we've talked about it. I, I don't have an answer. Okay. Right. I would say that um, I have a pet theory that it's like no matter what technology development you do, there's kind of a, a uh, societal rate of absorption that they have to go through. People have to get used to stuff, yeah. right? There, we went through it with cell phones. Like, right. like, what are you doing with that phone in a restaurant or, uh, you know, people that wouldn't mute it in a movie theater or the fact that people are taking pictures around and some people are sensitive to it. And now people are kind of, you know, it's settled down a lot. People, there's a, a new normal, right? Whether it's people learn to mute their phone or people got comfortable to there being cameras out there. I don't know that you can accelerate that. I think products have to come out and people have to get angry at one another and find a new set of rules. And yeah. Do you think there is a product or a killer app that is necessary to break things open for AR? Now you presented a whole bunch of them in your, in your talk last year, but I, is there something that you consider the, the app or I think that I think the have. the high level thing you see out of most people's concept stuff around AR is this idea of like give me superpowers and I don't mean that in the kind of you know that uh, sounds a little too exaggerated but if you think about the thing that really sold you know iPhones and and you know galaxies and other smartphones after the fact. At first, it was like, oh, look, it's got, you know, it's, it's all the, the, you know, it's your, your iPod and your camera, and it's also a phone and it's portable. Um, but eventually it was, I have the internet in my pocket, right? And then you think about all the stuff that's, at, that's added to, like, I can, I can take a picture of something and recognize what it is. I can instantly, uh, you know, hear a song and go, uh, uh, you know, tell me what that song is so it's it's augmented all of my senses and powers so making that just instantly accessible is in itself a killer app but once someone starts to kind of cross that barrier and that might happen with the smartphone they are i don't know um i think you'll see uh you know something will click as like oh we didn't think that was the thing but that's the thing right um so yeah kind of a vague answer but uh, that's a great answer it makes a lot of sense and, and we were joking earlier about our age and how yeah. we are, we're in our fifties and, but there's an entire generation that uh, is now well, at least two generations removed from us who are adopting technology faster than we've ever seen yeah. and embracing uh, new processes that are driven by these technologies. Do you think that makes a difference in the adoption, future adoption of AR, VR, any of the, the things that we dream about all the time. I, I think it certainly, uh, should remind us that, um, <laughs> you know, that, that all, all of us old kind of, uh, you know, grizzled veterans or, you know, uh, self-styled, uh, wise people, um, <laughs> it, it's going to get adopted in ways that we didn't anticipate, right? We're going to see people, whether it's, uh, you know, the ways in which people are streaming games or the, what turns out to be the killer app. Like you look at how, you know, uh, the kids these days are, are using technology and there's always, um, there's always surprises there, right? Not just in the ways in which they're using it, but kind of what their criteria are, right? I remember going through a, uh, a set of discussions just in, in our home about like, you know, the older people in, in our home, myself and the, my wife being kind of, uh, 
hey, we need to have all of the digital pictures. Are they all archived and where are they stored? And all the kids are like, what happened to that photo? I don't know. Like it's it's in the cloud somewhere. And if I find it, I find it. And if I don't, I don't. And it wasn't like a confidence, oh, Google has a hold of it. It was kind of like, no, it's ephemeral. And at the end of the day, you know, nothing lasts forever, right? So so that, that's an example of kind of a, a different kind of expectation out of what they get out of their tech and, uh, you know, the, the storing of files and things like that. That, yeah. that is fascinating. Yeah. I, I, I'll, I'll share another uh, amusing anecdote. So uh, I, I mentioned that my older son is kind of like, you know, big gamer and uses uh, Windows-based PCs. I have a younger son as well. It's all Chromebook all the time and also plays plays on everything, but for his like schoolwork and stuff, it's all Chromebook. He had an assignment, he had to do something in uh, Photoshop. So the older boy is gonna teach him how to use Photoshop. And I walk by when he's explaining to him, you need to save the file. You need to go on the hard drive and make a folder and name the file and put it here and remember where you've put it. And the other kid looked at him like he was from outer space. He was like, why would anyone ever do that? He goes, I, I can log into any Chromebook in the world and all my stuff's there. Like, I forget it. I don't need any of this file saving stuff. It's like he was talking about punch cards, right? It was like, they're four years apart, right? Like, the, it's not it's not that big. And suddenly there's this huge difference. So, yeah. Well, I think, too, you're you're describing gamer you know, behaviors mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Right? When we talk about our save files now, uh, I, I used to get really paranoid that my kids would erase my saves yeah. on my PlayStation 2 or three. Right. Yeah. Uh, and now I've, I'm a member of PlayStation Plus, so it's all uploaded and I just, wherever I'm, I am, work, home, I can actually access my saves, which is, right. I know it was sort of a pedestrian example of what you're talking about. No, no, it's the same thing, right? It has been a yeah. shift. Yeah, it's, a, it's a just, it's a shift in the way we use it and then the way that they uh, interact with and use these games, it's like, you know, uh, you know, Minecraft's a great example, right? My uh, my younger kid plays a, a ton, and he plays it on like three or four different platforms, and it's not always the same login, and he kind of doesn't care, right? It's like, oh, he can just kind of very like uh, fluidly just flow from like, no, here I was playing with these three friends, and then the battery ran out in this device, so I switched over the console, and now it's different people, and it's fine. I'm still, you know. Uh, locked in on some uh, Fortnite or what have you, right? And it's it's just all day long. So, yeah, it's uh, it, it's an interesting uh, shift in how people are using stuff, right? Yeah, and, and I, like the streaming to me was at first a mystery. I kind of now get it. I've found some content that I like and that I'll, I'll watch from time to time. But at first, to see like to come down and you know, you kids, you've been on the screens too long. You know, it's Minecraft. No, we're watching other people play Minecraft. I didn't get it for a long time, right? And now I, you know, totally understand. I have to admit, I still yeah. don't get it. I think I would much rather play than watch. Yeah. But, uh, but I, I agree. I think that there is a type of entertainment that is is new for us. I mean, obviously, we've been watching other people perform artistically uh, in athletics, et cetera, for millennia. Sure. Right. This is essentially the same thing, but uh, arguably more interesting. Yeah. Or I, I think there's more because just because it's happening natively on the Internet. And so there can be a wider selection of channels. It's it's not all there's a wider variety of the way people are, which are uh, the ways in which people are doing things like, sure, you could watch somebody that is the best player of game X, Y, Z. Right. Um, I had uh, coffee this morning with a, a friend of mine who's a VP at Disney, and she was telling me about uh, being hooked on this streamer that is uh, a, a kind of teenage girl who's trying uh, 
she's streaming The Sims, and her whole thing is like I, uh, having a hundred babies. She wants to like have a hundred babies in her house, and I guess at a certain point, your your resources start to run low, and it's hard to scale to that thing, and and it's like hugely popular, right? Or um, have you seen the uh, the stuff that's happening with uh, GTA Five? The uh, uh, so. I'm going to butcher the name. I think I think it's GTA Five RPG is what it's called. But it's a um, uh, you know a month or two ago, the in terms of top Twitch Twitch streams, GTA Five popped up back on the radar, and it's like you know a multi year old game. So what's what's going on? Somebody's built a system where um, if if I get the numbers right, uh, 250 people can log in. But in order to log in, they have to basically kind of sign up to play a role. They have to submit a, who their persona is, what they're going to do. And then it's basically a 250 person improv, right? With all of these like Twitch streamer personalities who all kind of in GTA 5 play, I'm the old grizzled man, I'm the kind of uh, femme fatale. And, and then it's just, you know, go follow any one of them as they interact with each other. It's a giant live reality show slash improv thing. It's like, the most interesting thing happening on television, kind of, even though it's on Twitch, right? That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah. Stars emerging from places we would never expect. Yeah. And just the, the, the ways in which it's getting remixed and formulated is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so sort of a parallel topic yeah. is, is, is VR yeah. and where that's going. Sure. And, and I know that, uh, when I, I know that people who probably don't play VR and aren't as familiar with it, Maybe the closest cultural association is Ready Player One. Yeah. And to me, you know, what you're talking about sort of evokes that idea that we can all go to this place and we can be together and we can be whoever we want. And VR arguably has been the closest way, as, as least presented that promise mm -hmm. to us. Uh, kind of like I asked about AR, is, are we, is that a potential future for VR? For total immersion, total social... Connections. It's interesting. I guess I mean the um, the go somewhere and be who who you want to be doesn't necessarily mean total immersion, right? That could be a, 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 you know a, a 2D MMO, could be a chat forum, could be anything. But the, but having a space where people can try on different persona or interact in a kind of more improvisational way versus a scripted like you are Master Chief and here's what you're going to do or you're going to fail. I think there's loads of potential for that stuff, and there's there's room for that to overlap with VR. Mm -hmm. um, I think that you know, turning and looking at the VR topic, I think there are people that want a uh, highly immersive and highly, not necessarily scripted, but um, you know, auteured kind of uh, experience, right? I, I want a whether it's a AAA game or or a more kind of indie thing. I, I want a crafted experience that I'm going to, you know, uh, uh, that came out of someone's imagination, got turned into a thing that then I can go immerse myself in and be amazed, right? Um, and then there are, and, and you see that in uh, whether it's, you know, taking uh, Skyrim and doing a VR version of it, or whether it's in a Space Pirate Trainer or Beat Saber or what have you, that's like a, you know, uh, a particular experience that's authored and people are, are in, um, you know, all the alchemy titles are a great example too, right? And, um, and then if you look more at the kind of more freeform, you know, VR chat and other things, yeah, people are then, there's a thirst for environments in which people can, you know, 
interact in some way, whether it's like they all agree, here's what the rules are, we're going to go in and do this thing, or whether they just all jump in and just kind of hang out. Uh, there's, there's room for all of those things to exist. And then you get all the challenges of, okay, how compelling is the experience? Mm -hmm. What's the cost? What's the friction to get in? What's the pain points? And, uh, you know, it's, it's a, you know, early on when, when we started our VR team and our involvement there, we made kind of like, I'm sure everybody's got the same list. Like here's a list of all the stuff that needs to get better, right? It needs to get cheaper. It needs to be wireless. It needs to have better resolution. It needs to not weigh as much. And, you know, it's a long, long list like that. And, uh, it's daunting, right? It's a, it's a long way off from being a, you know, uh, flip a switch and forget about it. Uh, kind of, kind of an experience. And, um, you know, I think the uh, the quest is a great example of like, okay, a couple of the friction points they nailed, you know, really far off the charts. Then other things are still uh, limit. Other things maybe you know, they, they, in that sense of trade offs, they kind of took a step backwards on like, okay, it's a little bit lower fidelity, it's a little right. less compute power, but no wire, easy to get into. You know, they think that's a, a, a good set of trade-offs. It probably is for some set of people, you know. So well, I think like, back to your point yeah. about the, uh, you mentioned this about AR, you've got the all bells and whistles, yeah. extremely expensive version. And then you've yeah. got the immediately accessible, maybe lower res, right. which is which could be more mass market. I've tried the Quest and I was yeah. really impressed. Yeah, yeah, me too. Be because I didn't care that right. it was slightly lower res than the yeah, Rift. Yeah. I, I, what I liked was I could walk around and I could yeah. feel like I was really, I really was in the game and yeah. I wasn't worried about uh, yanking the cord out of the PC. Right. So that was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, no, no doubt. And, um, you know, that, that's why I'm saying like their set of trade-offs of, uh, okay, I will be, um, you know, I'll, I'll nail all those things on ease of use and I'll give up a little bit on visual fidelity is probably for a lot of people, absolutely the right trade-off. If yeah. somebody really wants a big high-end kind of Skyrim type uh, game, or they want a, uh, they want to use it for a, you know, high-end commercial uh, rendering, then they might end up saying, okay, now how do I wirelessly get some frames off another device? Or maybe I prefer a tethered solution. I think the, the, the out of box thing that most impressed me about that uh, was the, uh, their evolution to the kind of um, initial mapping out of your space, like just throw it on and the pass-through camera happens. It was like, oh yeah, all the all the PC solutions are going to do this. This like this is the new normal. Like, yeah. they just nailed it. So uh, good for them. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I hope it. I think it opens up a lot of design opportunities as yeah, well absolutely. for for yeah. developers. Yeah. Uh, but that's and I think it's a great step forward. What do you think needs? What else do you think needs to happen? Because you had a whole list of things that you guys believe yeah. need to change for this to be mass market. Where, what's the next sort of threshold that VR has to pass? Uh, well, I mean, the most kind of blatant answer is like it needs to get to 10 or 20 million units, right? It needs to, it needs to get to an install base where... Well, uh, that's sort of what I meant. I mean, to yeah, get yeah. there, other things have to occur yeah. to encourage people to pick one up. It's sort of more of a, a, a no-brainer to go out and buy a headset because X, Y, and Z. Yeah, because there is, you know, great content there, right? And and so there's a, there's one view that says, okay, you know, uh, maybe people kind of bootstrap all these things and it's no one, uh, it's no one element. Maybe it's like a couple of the right games, get a few more people to buy it, makes the install base a little bigger, but gets a few more indie guys doing it. One guy nails a, a you know, the next Beat Saber, and that gets a few more people to buy it. There's there's that point of view as well. I think that the um, 
you know, having a good library of, uh, of, of kind of high quality content, like the, the quest has uh, been aiming to do, uh, will go a long way in getting there. I'm a little concerned about, you know, there's again, pros and cons to this, but the fact that it is a kind of more closed platform and you can't just ship your titles on it means you kind of have to bank that the crew over there makes the right decisions about what to what titles to put on the platform and that they don't miss something or don't you know expend all their uh their their funding and money on on titles that don't resonate um so uh yeah i know it's it's not any one factor it's all these things right well maybe it's not games i mean yeah. you intel you yeah. guys just broadcast or recently broadcast a raptors game in vr right? yeah yeah we have a whole group that's doing uh uh like they're doing more than VR. There's an Intel sports group who's uh, viewing kind of the the digitization of broadcast sports events in all kinds of ways as an opportunity to say, well, you know, we we build compute solutions, we can go do that, right? So we um, uh, we acquired two companies a while back and have turned them into two Intel uh, technologies. One of which is a kind of streaming of um, like 360 video, but they do it from multiple viewpoints. So you can say, well, I, I want to be at this end of the stadium or let me shift over there. And then there it's live streamed. Uh, we debuted that or de uh, first kind of large scale debut was at the, um, the winter Olympics in Korea, mm. uh, where we broadcast a bunch of events and, you know, we were all sitting in my lab in Oregon with headsets on watching people do the, you know, ski jumps and stuff, uh, which is, which is pretty cool. Um, and then there's a, another uh, bit of tech that they have there where they've outfitted uh, stadiums, but, you know, basketball uh, stadiums and some football stadiums with whole arrays of high-res cameras. And then they put like a, you know, really beefy amount of computing in the basement or somewhere in the building. And they, uh, they real-time basically like crunch all those video feeds and turn it into a giant high-res voxel map. Right. And so if you uh, and, and that's initially been done as a broadcast technology. So if you look at uh, NFL football, uh, you can see clips where they'll say, hey, let's go look what the point of view was from the quarterback. And you see this kind of pixelated uh, voxel view. That's that's our tech doing that. But the, the goal is that eventually that should be stuff that you can stream. Right. So will that be the killer app? I don't know. Uh, but it certainly adds to the, uh, you know, adds to the mix of stuff that the market is is playing with and experimenting with, right? Do you think that more traditional B2B applications are mm -hmm. also helping uh, make inroads? Because I don't think on the gaming side, we hear yeah. much about that. We kind of see it peripherally happening where large companies are investing heavily in VR training. Yeah. And, and it, it's, it makes sense. Yeah, but we sort of ignore that. Probably, may potentially, at the risk of missing out on opportunities. Yeah, well, it depends. Like you know, if you were a struggling uh, games company that said, "I, I I'm going to go do some contract work and build a you know medical imaging uh, solution or or do uh, architectural walkthroughs or whatever," uh, then maybe it's good to have have an eye on that stuff. So, it certainly helps from the perspective of you know we have seen adoption in. Uh, uh, retail, um, medical, architectural, like uh, all the segments that maybe used VR at the very, very highest end, right? Maybe you were uh, an architect firm bidding on a Vegas casino and you could, it's, you know, a multi-million dollar deal, you can afford the VR rig to do it. 
now it can be something that you're, you know, you're trying to show someone their kitchen, you know, their kitchen remodel, right? And it's affordable to do. So all those segments are adopting it. And that helps if for no other reason, because it just gets more scale to the industry, which brings price of headsets down and price yeah. of computers down and stuff. So I'll admit that we yeah. did that here. We, yeah. we are replacing a lot of our desks and yeah. with more modern desks and the firm that's designing them yeah. brought in HoloLens. Oh, okay. for everybody to use and so we cleared out one of our conference rooms and everybody was walking around, around that's awesome looking at the desks yeah. in in the space and that was it was really useful because we identified problems that we would have never identified had we just looked at static renderings at least i don't think we would have because being able to sort of bend down and look under it and and walk around it gave more context right. to the design yeah, like, uh, you know, you could imagine a, a kitchen remodel or something where you're like, hey, I, I can't actually see out the window because that cabinet when I'm like sitting over here and stuff uh, yeah. is, you know, that that feels like a uh, kind of a no brainer, right? Yeah. Oh, so what do you think of haptics? I think you've mentioned that before in various, various right. times you've been out talking about VR. Um, well, I think that uh, there, there, <laughs> there was an early wave of stuff in in this wave of VR and in the previous wave 20 years back where like the moment people say VR is happening, it's like, okay, well, what can I do? Well, what's, what, which of the senses is up for grabs? You know, I'll do the olfactory peripheral and I'll do the haptic stuff. And so some of the stuff is very gimmicky. And then some of the stuff is very useful. Certainly for some of these professional apps, having kind of like high precision tactile feedback for like a, a surgeon or something is, is uh, one could envision that being uh, important, right? Um, I will say I was surprised. Have you done any of the void experiences? No, I, folks yeah. here at Insomniac have, and I, I haven't gotten a chance to yeah, go yeah. down to it. So yet. I only got around to doing it uh, over spring break. I brought my kids down to the LA area, and we went and did the uh, the one down at downtown Disney uh, and did both the Star Wars one and the um, uh, Wreck-It Ralph uh, one, or R Ralph Wrecks the Internet. And uh, I expected that I would get kind of like a best physical presence move around type of experience that it would have some kind of kitschy haptics and that you know that that wouldn't be the uh, the thing and and it almost was the opposite in that the 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 haptics were very effective right it has like some motion stuff in the vest and then they do a thing where you like uh you you, you emerge from a you know uh you emerge from a building over kind of a lava field and they like pump in like some fake smoke smell. And like that was, it was super compelling. And, and I talked to a number of other people that all said that that was like the thing that did it for them. So I don't know if it's because I'm so used to VR and that was novel to me, but I was surprised at how uh, a simple, you know, sensory effect that I wasn't expecting was a big, it turned out to be a big part of the experience. So, you know, we'll see. Do you think that's haptics and maybe olfactory or other mm -hmm. things yeah, are, yeah. are a reasonable expectation for VR players a few years down the road, or is it still a niche thing? And I ask this because yeah. we've been approached by haptics companies as well, because we're in VR and we tend, the approach we tend to take is, well, it needs to be adopted on a wider scale first before yeah. we can build that support into our games. Yeah. I mean, and, and which turns into, okay, which of the VR vendors is making a bet on it. Right. So like, yeah. uh, so in the same way that, um, you know, Oculus did the like finger presence thing and then uh, Valve said, okay, well, we're going to do the, 
you know, all the fingers uh, on the, on the uh, knuckles controller, right? Um, I would imagine that one of those vendors will take kind of what's the VR equivalent of like, you know, rumble, right? Like the, there'll be something in the controller, maybe in the headset that is slightly more than just a vibration and that that might be enough to say, oh, that that's really compelling. And I can now count it as part of the base experience. But for the very reasons you're saying, I don't think you're going to see like people donning whole body vests mm. and uh, you know, pants and uh, stuff like that. It, it, it gets you know hard to do those things. And the fragmentation that you talk about is uh, part of it too. Um, you, you might see some in like with the void, like in various location-based things, but again, yeah. it'll be a backpack PC or a vest of some kind, maybe with, uh, you know, it's like arcadey stuff, right? So it, maybe you're getting the bullet hit in the chest but not necessarily, you know, or a tap on the shoulder, not necessarily uh, anything of high precision. It's hard. It's hard to imagine that that would be uh, warranted. So, yeah. yeah, I hope it. I hope someday yeah. though it, it does become accessible, easy to use, and pervasive. It would be yeah. great because yeah, yeah. I mean I think for any of us who grew up in the '80s and '90s, uh, you know, at least I remember hearing about VR back then and going, yeah. "Oh man, it, that would be so great to be." truly immersed where everything I see is, is believable. I'm feeling the, you know, the dragon's breath or whatever right. it happens to be. Yeah. It, it may, and maybe it turns out that like each of those has their own version of the uncanny Valley. Like, are you, yeah. are you better off with no haptics than bad haptics? Right. I, I don't know. Uh, somebody will have to try and, well, I think your, your example of the rumble controller, right? Yeah. I, I think console manufacturers implementation of rumble has had, I think a significant effect on how we think about combat and games, how yeah. we think about traversal. And, and it actually does, I think, enhance the experience quite a bit because it becomes one of those subtle uh, unconscious triggers that just uh, makes you feel a little bit more there. Right. Yeah. And, and maybe it took uh, that kind of, you know, decades worth of developers adopting it and moving from just a switch it on and off yeah. to, okay, can I get, you know, asking them, can I get analog control for it? Can I have uh, independent left, right control? Or, you know, I don't even know what all the parameters they give you these days are. But you can do a lot yeah. with it. But the yeah. funny thing is you, you can and you can't. Right. Right. We feel like uh, there, there are absolutely limitations, but the tiny tweaks you can make actually do make a difference to, I think, to gamers because you can tell the difference between yeah. a hard rumble and a soft rumble or the timing or the ramp up into the full rumble. Right. Like those all have, those are all subtle signals that I think we as gamers begin to understand as the lexicon of a particular game. So there's a bunch of things happening in like, um, I'm not even sure, I guess it's, it's, uh, I don't even know the word for it, the kind of the mix of haptics with, uh, with input, if you think about what some of the phone guys have done to kind of give you subtle feedback on a virtual keyboard, like a tiny vibration that makes almost tricks you into thinking that there was a, a, a bump on the screen yeah. or a tactile thing so that you mentally register that you've hit the right thing, right? That there, there may be little tricks like that that aren't really about, oh, let me uh, fool you into thinking you were hit with a club over the shoulder and more you know, uh, did I correctly grab the door handle? Right. Right. Cause right now there's a lot of like, I need to see the controller switch from red to blue. When I squeeze the trigger, that means my hand successfully grasped it in 3d space. Maybe it's just a, a subtle little vibration or, or something like that will give you a, a enough there. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's a, I think it's a great point. Yeah. We tend to forget about these things cause we look at the sort of the macro 
solution right. versus all the little tiny clues that we could right. introduce. I, I actually, I, when you yeah. said that, I was thinking about my watch. I've got an Apple watch yeah. and the bezel uh, will vibrate slightly yeah. depending on what you're doing. And that's that kind of slight resistance is really transfers a lot of information for yeah. me. In yeah, terms yeah, of what yeah, I'm yeah. Doing. exactly. Right. There are, there are masters of that kind of stuff. And, and so, you know, will we see the things like, like, are there versions of that with the headset? Can I do a little tweak on your cheekbone and tell you something or, uh, you know, or with the controllers again, um, you know, there was a, uh, a, a, I don't know what's happened to this company, but somebody that was making the rounds demoing a, um, uh, a VR controller early in this wave of, of VR that claimed to give you, you know, uh, so one of the issues right now is I can take a controller and hold it in my hand, but if I, um, you know, I, I can't make it exert force on me. I can't take the controller and and make it feel like somebody's trying to twist it to the left or right. And this guy gave me this controller and you know put it in these various demo modes and said, okay, now it's a heavy weight with momentum, and I move it and it feels like it has momentum. And he goes, now it's on the spring, and I take it and it feels like someone's pulling back on my hand. I'm like, it's like black magic. How is it accomplishing this? And what it was doing was uh, it had actuators on all sides of the controller that were just pushing slightly on the skin of my hand. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I thought, was, I thought and, you could say gyroscopes or something. No, like, no, okay. no. That's what I thought at first too. And it was just mentally enough that the slight force on my skin simulated what you would feel if somebody was pulling on this thing and it was in your hand and that that like mentally made the the association for me right so there were a bunch of other reasons why the demo was kind of kludgy and stuff but it was a an interesting uh example of like hey you know there's a lot of different kind of input uh you know, we, we have a lot of senses uh, that work in a lot of ways and, and there are whole things that aren't yet explored with, you know, temperature and uh, different types of tactile senses and yeah. that. Well, it's yeah. it's pretty neat to be here where all of those things are a possibility now, a real yeah. possibility without costing thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah. So I, I hope all this comes to pass. Yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> so going back to your your prediction for 2025, one right. of the, your, your, your mascot melee yeah. example, uh, you were talking about how AI is acting on behalf of friends, yeah. right? And you guys also do a lot of work in AI, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I read about uh, one use of AI that Intel is experimenting with is flagging toxic behavior. Yeah, online. yeah, yeah. That's actually coming out of my, my team, right? Really? So can yeah. you tell, tell us more about that? Sure. So, uh, I guess first off, like AI is a whole other topic. There's, there's, I know, we, lots, we of, there's lots of types of AI it. and then there's like the, the current kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, wave of interest in machine learning and this kind of, uh, you know, brute force application of AI to large data sets and stuff. Uh, so we, and, and this, and this effort that we, uh, showcase again, just proof of concept, no commitment on uh, product yet, though we'd like to see something happen. Um, the, we showed this thing at GDC this year, this was born out of, we said, you know, looking at this kind of, you know, other billion people playing games on PCs and saying, okay, how can we make their lives better? What are they doing? And, and being Intel, we tend to go to, well, you know, smoother frame rate and uh, better compute and maybe make it a bit thinner and, uh, you know, make the battery last longer, this kind of thing. And we did some, uh, you know, user research. We have kind of teams of ethnographers that go talk to people in different markets and watch them use technology in their homes and, um, and talk to some people and also 
took some external market research doing similar type of stuff. And the, and the pain points, the, the things that were bubbling up to the top of the list weren't those things. They were things like, uh, like toxicity, right? Like it doesn't matter if you have a smoother frame rate, if I jump into a game of, uh, you know, apex legends and, and I go to speak and I have a female voice and then people just start saying awful things. Right. Um, or, uh, you know, in, in, um, esports or just online games in general, like cheating, right? Like again, uh, your performance is great. I don't like it when I try really hard to win. And then I just realize like all these guys are, are, you know, cheating at the game. Right. So there was a bit of an, an eye opener moment saying, okay, we need to work on the stuff we usually work on, but we should say, can we play a role in any of these other things? Can we look at them? Right. And so, um, Many, it, to, to zero in on the toxicity topic as an example, the kind of first, uh, you know, uh, very easy kind of conclusions to make is, well, it's not a technology problem. It's kind of a, a design problem and a community administration problem. Part of it might be a legal problem or, a, you know, there's a, uh, there's a whole bunch of facets to that problem. We said, can we take tech and... Um, uh, or, or can is there anybody out there taking technology to try and help solve part of the problem? We did a proof of concept. We ran into this uh, company uh, called Spirit AI. Spirit AI does, and there's a few companies doing this, doing kind of um, application of AI to text chat and to uh, uh, online forums and stuff and saying, okay, can I spot toxic behavior, you know, uh, uh, bad language, harassment, hate speech, uh, uh, spam. There's like a whole litany of different categories of stuff. And not just like, oh, go look for this keyword, but can I spot trends through a conversation? Can I spot the behavior of a bad actor? Can I spot the reemergence of a bad actor with a different tag or name associated, right? And they'd been looking at this for some time. And we said, uh, hey, do you have... Um, uh, can you do this with like voice chat in games? And they said, no, we do it with text. And we said, well, we have some speech to text technology. Can we try plugging them together? Right. And so we did a proof of concept that, that was like, uh, you know, wiggling on a workbench kind of thing of, yeah, we can take streams out of uh, YouTube and show that we can successfully like of, of, you know, toxic behavior in games. Cause that's where sometimes people will upload their clips of look how I got treated by this, uh, by this dude over here and, um, and kind of, you know, show the transcript of stuff and show that we're flagging it early. Right. So it's like, okay, we, we proved that you can do that. Now, where does that go as a, as a potential product, right? Whether with this company or another company, what we suggested, you know, was, Hey, it's, it's feasible to go do this. Um, it's fairly obvious that people that are providing tools to developers and to platforms that are going to, um, uh, implement this stuff themselves, that you could use this to basically zero in on problems sooner and get it in front of a human operator or a, you know, a moderator of some kind more quickly, right? So you're not yet at the point of making decisions using AI, but you're, you're kind of saying, hey, you should look over here and, and maybe lowering the cost of doing that for the developer or making it uh, more, making them able to get to people's problems more quickly. Right. Um, over time, we would like to see, you know, moving to just uh, having the capability work in a real time fashion and where it's been trained enough that you can confidently um, 
make decisions. And then, and then you get into a bunch of interesting discussions over, well, uh, who gets to make that decision, right? Is that the, the developer that says, these are the rules for my community, or is it the end user saying, whatever those rules are, I have my own set of rules, right? So you might say, no hate speech in my community. I might say, well, no profanity when my kids are playing, right? And, and maybe those can coexist, maybe they can't, but I think we were just aiming first to kind of show that the technology can, can be done, and then, uh, and then we'll see where you know, others run with it from there. So is this an opportunity for an open effort where companies are banding together and saying, look, data is, our, data is the key, right? Yeah. We have to have enough to train these algorithms to be more and more effective. Can we uh, join forces? Yeah, I, I think that some of this was born out of, um, uh, I, I mentioned like these surveys we did, but we, we were involved in kind of some, uh, there was this hack harassment initiative and there was uh, there's a, a, a trade group called the Fair Play Alliance uh, where, where there was kind of a working group within there looking at this problem. And so that's come up as a um, potential collaboration area. Um, I don't know, I haven't followed the latest with them on whether like people have agreed like, yes, here's my data set, um, go. Um, but it's certainly a next step like for the uh, the proof of concept that we did, we said, okay, it's fine for us to kind of show we can do some stuff with some YouTube clips, but to really measure how effective it is, we need to take someone's game and like train it, right? Or someone's chat system or someone's platform. Um, so we're, we're talking to some people about maybe doing that as like a next iteration, maybe next year's GDC or maybe hopefully sooner, but okay. yeah. Are there, are there other places where you think developers should be thinking about uh, and it's a broad topic, AI, yeah. in, in, to address the just increasing complexity of game development? I think there's there's already a, a bunch of companies that are using it for uh, just things like testing, mm -hmm. right? Like, let me train virtual users and have them go, uh, uh, you know, put my game through its paces with a bunch of AI playing the game, maybe as like a first wave just to nail a big wave of uh, bugs out of the gate. Um, I don't know. I mean, you could probably tell me better whether, uh, people are doing it for things like, um, you know, you, you could, you could imagine that it could be useful for things like, uh, level design, right? Like, can I have a bunch of AI players, not just like test my game for bugs, but run through and kind of, uh, express whether they found the flow of a level to be satisfying or whether they played a multiplayer map and were uh, and there were kind of spots to unfairly camp right? it wasn't like well balanced um you know a lot of stuff that you, you like uh, i i've been at microsoft for a couple of years and uh the the halo team i think gave some talks about how they were doing this like what at the time was pretty ahead of the curve like heat maps for like thousands mm -hmm. of player tests to show oh we found a spot on the map that like gives players an unfair advantage we lopped it off right um, that seems like totally ripe for not using thousands of people, but using thousands of AIs, at least as a, as a starting, uh, starting point. I, I think you're right. And I, automated testing is an easy mm -hmm. win. I mean, I think yeah. it's something that probably most of us are either looking into or, or starting to implement. It's the, I think the challenge that we as traditional developers encounter is that we're always moving really fast right? and investing the resources in experimenting with AI and figuring out how we can actually integrate it into the production design process or production processes is yeah. it's a hurdle, uh, but yeah. how much cost do you put in building tools versus well, building your game? Exactly. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, I, and I think that it's, 
all of us sort of need to sometimes just take a step back and, and think about that versus just going 100 miles an hour. Yeah, hopefully some just like engine companies have popped up to solve some of those problems and say, hey, uh, rather than, you know, do I build my game or do I invest in my 3D engine editor? If some people have said just, you know, just license my Unreal Engine. Sure. Right? I mean, that's, um, that's, that's. So hopefully they or it. other new companies will pop up and say, hey, we have a licensable AI solution for problem XYZ. Uh, well, actually, that's that's to me a little bit of a surprise. I would expect by now there would be a lot more companies who are popping up. But then again, the not to to wax too much on this topic, there aren't that many companies who are building their own engines and tools, right? A lot of right. people are relying on Unreal or Unity, right? Yeah, and so and and maybe it's them that like I don't know if they have a contingent of. Uh, AI people, uh, you know, slaving away on on whatever, like you know, Epic's huge these days. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, yeah, it, it'll be it'll be interesting to see. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of opportunity there. So going back to open systems, do you yeah. think it's possible for our industry to embrace open systems? Well, uh, I hope so because you know the, the the PC is arguably the most open uh, platform today. I mean, none none of these things are a hundred percent closed or a hundred percent open. It's a spectrum, right? Uh, and so you know, even if they say, "Well, we're open to developers," we have a, an app store that you can submit on, but then there's a policy as to what you can or can't do, or your API is bound which part of the platform you can you can touch on, right? Certainly, the the PC has traditionally uh, leaned more heavily to the open end of the of the spectrum and has benefited from it, right? It, the the fact that people could come in and build a, you know, a, a PCI card or an ISA card before that and drop it in and add some new functionality has made PC audio and PC 3D uh, graphics proceed faster than if it had just been you know, uh, Intel uh, doing the thing, right? So I hope that continues. I think there is a very, um, you know, it, it, and and it continues to surprise me in that it, it does really well. But I worry a lot about the kind of critical mass that's required as the market gets bigger and bigger, and the appeal of closed systems in the face of all of this complexity that users are faced with. Of just I'll just go buy a console or an iPhone or what have you because it's just easier. Um, but there's this kind of you know symbiotic relationship that comes out of the two, right? Like a lot of the you know, uh, next gen features on any new wave of console are basically creating a packaged version of what kind of happened in the high end enthusiast space uh, first, right? And and then it drives the popularity of it, and then the PC does the next version. So I I think it's necessary for an open version to exist in order for the innovation to continue even on the closed platforms. But uh, I don't know that everyone agrees. So. I, what a great yeah. connection, though. Yeah. I, I certainly would have never made it. Uh, so just. To, to wrap up, I have yeah, a couple sure. far-reaching questions. What excites you the most about where the technology you work with is going? I think that uh, it'll sound a bit. Uh, I think it'll sound a bit mundane, but I, I talked earlier about like that that other billion people <laughs> and the potential there. And and Amy Henning talked on this uh, talked touched on this in the podcast you did with her the other day that there is like. I believe a potential for games to go another kind of 10x level of growth uh, over where it is today over the next decade. I think we'll look back and, and be surprised at how big it could go. And part of that means building 
systems that are capable of, you know, high quality AAA experiences in, a, in an accessible way in the devices that they use every day. And that might mean, um, you know, uh, and, and that's going to mean for a high-end gamer, a high-performance system that they bought to kind of be on the bleeding edge. But it means that for all those other PC users, they need a, you know, a thin laptop that they buy to take to school or to take to work. And the good news is that those are getting really capable, right? They're at the kind of, uh, you know, very close to or soon surpassing kind of an Xbox One level of uh, graphics performance and, and a bigger capacity of memory and stuff. So they'll be very capable. The phones are doing the same thing. And so this idea that at, just like today, almost any consumer uh, uh, computing device you buy can stream and run high-res video, we should be able to say the same thing about running games, whether that means running them locally or streaming them. It'll be a mix of all those things. And so that potential of opening it up beyond just that you know, 100 million to 200 million uh, core gamers you know, uh, I did I did a talk at, uh, at Intel a while ago. Um, you know, we, we, we talk about this like, you know, $140, $150 billion of, of, gaming, uh, of gaming software. And you'll hear people say, oh, games are bigger than movies, but they're not, right? But like that's box office. But when you look at the, the, the spending overall, the games are about 10% of the global media and entertainment spending. Right, which is like $1.4 trillion today. So games shouldn't be 10%. Games should do to TV and movies what they did to radio. Games should be the lion's share of that, right? So if, if it grows to 50% in the next decade or two and games will change a lot, they, they'll be, you know, I think, uh, I think you touched on some of this with, uh, with Kiki and her thing the other day that like these, it's kind of new hybrids of Hollywood production and storyline, but with some interactivity, like borrowing from the the tricks of both industries or the you know the best craftsmanship of both industries. We'll see a lot of stuff emerge there, but like there's there's just so much potential. Like uh, that's that's what excites me. So I think yeah. that's that's a wonderful and bright, optimistic view. So thanks for sharing. I, I hope it comes true. All right. Well, we'll all work to try to make that come absolutely. True. Uh, Kim, if people want to ask you additional questions, how can they reach you? I'm uh, Kim Pal, K-I-M-P-A-L-L uh, on Twitter, and uh, that's usually the best way. So, Kim, yeah. thank you very much for being here. Oh, thanks. I, I'm such a fan of the show. I'm uh, thrilled to have done this. Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.